Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, welcome to a new episode of Germany in Focus, a podcast made possible by members of The Local. Today, we're talking about how Germany is gearing up for the possibility of war in future by beefing up the Bundeswehr or German army. After a referendum on hiking up parking fees on SUVs in Paris, we're talking about the calls to do that in Germany and why an anonymous group has been letting out the air in SUV tires in German cities. A new pilot project trialing a four-day week in Germany has just started, so we'll get into why the idea is gathering momentum. And the German citizenship law is going to be relaxed soon, but one major problem is the backlog of citizenship applications, especially in Berlin, where there are tens of thousands of unprocessed documents from applicants. We'll hear from an immigration lawyer and discuss what this means for foreign residents. I'm Rachel Loxon, and I'm here in Berlin today with journalists Aaron Burnett and the local Germany editor, Rachel Stern. Hello. Hello. How are you both? Oh, great. It is February in Germany, which means a lot of events on, actually. It's kind of an interesting month to have so many events, but this yep. is Germany. We have Berlin Alle, one of the world's largest film festivals in Berlin. The Munich Security Conference, the world's most well-known conference on security. And of course, some merriment out west, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. We have the carnival activities, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm doing well. Thanks, Rach. It's that time of year where it's still wintry, but mild enough where I want to, you know, be out and about a lot, especially with all of these events going on. Maybe that's the secret. It's like, hey, it's mild and let's usher in the end of winter with all these events. Okay, let's start with what's been in the news. Since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022, Germany announced a Seitenwende, or sea change, when it comes to defence, pledging to build back up its Bundeswehr, the German army, and commit at least 2% of the national GDP to military spending. But in the last weeks, we've been hearing a lot more talk about the possibility of war spreading in Europe as the world's security situation becomes more unstable. And there have even been calls for countries like Germany to become war ready. Aaron, first of all, I know you've been researching a lot into war in Europe, particularly in Ukraine. What are defence experts in Germany saying about the possibility of more conflicts and what might this look like? That's right, Rage. This has been a big focus, actually, um, or this topic has been a big focus of another co podcast I co-host with Ben Talis from the German Council on Foreign Relations called Berlin Side Out. And we're headed to the Munich Security Conference this weekend, where we expect this will be a really big discussion item, especially because we're going to be hearing from U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and Ukrainian President Zelensky uh, are all slated to be speaking uh, there in Munich. A lot of 
of people will be waiting to hear what they have to say on the possibility of more conflicts. But here's where we're at right now. Um, German General Karsten Breuer said this week he reckons we have about five years before Russia can rearm itself from its losses in Ukraine and attack a member state of NATO, which would include Germany potentially being on a Russian hit list. But Central and Eastern European countries like Estonia and Nordic ones like Finland, who have borders with Russia, reckon that that calculation, that five years that Breuer mentioned, is is off. And we have way less time than that, more like two or three years to be ready to defend ourselves against Russia. Uh, as Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kallas said recently, before Russia can and may well test uh, NATO's Article 5 by attacking a European NATO state like Estonia, Finland, or even Germany. Now, testing Article 5 of NATO, basically that is a fancy way of saying if the Russians attack a NATO member, will other members, including the US or Germany, actually come to their aid and defense as the NATO treaty requires them to? One scenario we have seen floated by German defense experts is that Russia invades a frontline state like Estonia, and then it hits critical German infrastructure like German cities, railways, factories with long-range missiles in order to, to basically scare us into not coming to Estonia's aid and defense. So Germany's not fighting off Russian ground troops in a scenario like uh, that one, mm-hmm. but we're still getting hit uh, with Russian missiles if something like that were to come to pass. Okay, not going to lie, even though you're talking about this as a worst-case scenario, that is scary to hear that this has been talked about as a possibility. But I guess defense experts are discussing that, right? Yeah, German defense experts are talking about that as a possible scenario. But what is important to mention here is that it's not a foregone conclusion. There are things that we can do to help prevent it. And it comes down to two things, really. So I guess a lot of how the situation actually develops hinges on if Putin succeeds in his war against Ukraine, right? And who the next president of the United States is. And this week, we also heard that absolutely wild comments from Donald Trump, who basically said Russia could do whatever it wanted to the US's uh, European allies who didn't pay enough for their own defenses. Yeah, which would include Germany historically in the last couple of years is not having spent that 2% on defense that is the NATO goal. Mm -hmm. And those two things that you uh, just mentioned right now how the war plays out in Ukraine, who gets elected U.S. president. Those are the two things that influence that, you know, scenario that we were talking about earlier. Firstly, Russian resources are tied up in Ukraine right now, leaving Putin largely unable to focus elsewhere, at least for the moment. Now, the best possible outcome for Ukraine, but also for us in Germany, is for Ukraine to win this war, defeat Russia on Ukrainian territory, and for Ukraine to then be made a member of NATO. That would go a long way to deterring Russia from attacking us in the future. And it would deplete the resources that Russia has to go and try and invade yet another one of its neighbors, something it's been doing repeatedly, Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine, since 2008. And that's an assessment recently shared by NATO head uh, Jens Stoltenberg uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that Russia is emboldened by weakness. If it thinks you can't defend yourself, it'll attack. If you're strong, it won't. So a lot of this is about investing more in our uh, own defense. If we do that, uh, there's much less of, of, of an incentive for him to attack 
attack because, of course, you know, he'll he'll lose a lot more. Yep. This is why comments by Donald Trump in the U.S. are so alarming here. A lot of European militaries, particularly Germany's, have been underinvesting for years, leading to a lot of worry about whether Europe can withstand a Russian attack without U.S. support. Uh, President Joe Biden has called Trump's remarks un-American, but if Trump gets in, Europe may find itself on its own, and that would include Germany as one of the largest states in Europe. Yeah, and I mean, since the very first day of the war in Ukraine, President Zelensky has been saying that anybody who comes to the aid of Ukraine is basically helping their own countries as well, and that they're not just helping Ukraine, but really the West and the free world in general. And I think it's only now that this statement is really being taken seriously, um, but hopefully it's not too little too late. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Helping to ensure Ukrainian victory is one of the ways that we prevent that uh, scenario that I was talking about earlier about Russian missiles hitting German cities and infrastructure from happening. With all this in mind, how is Germany preparing for the possibility of Russia kind of increasing its attacks? So before February 2022, Germany was spending about 1.2% of its GDP on defense. That's far below the 2% target NATO has uh, and one of the lowest percentages in the alliance that made Germany a real big target for um, Donald Trump uh, in his first presidency. We'll see uh, later this year if it's in fact the only president's the Trump presidency, of course. In that speech on Seitenwende you mentioned earlier, Rach, Olaf Scholz promised to make 100 billion euros available in a special fund to modernize the German armed forces, the Bundeswehr. This week, we've now seen that Germany is actually projected to hit that 2% target for the first time in over 30 years. Back during the Cold War, Germany did spend even 3% or more of its GDP on defense at times. So this would mark a return to those times and closer to that level of spending. And that money, according to the defense ministry, it's going to be spent on everything from tanks to frigates to submarines to jet fighters. So we're seeing a Germany that appears ready to invest more in Mm -hmm. its own defense. What we're not seeing that I think we need to see more of is a full commitment to Ukrainian victory. As I said before, one way to prevent those that worst case scenario from happening is to invest in our own defense. The other, as uh, Rachel was alluding to, is to really go all in on Ukrainian victory. Olaf Schultz has cautioned about what a Russian victory would mean. It would mean a subjugated Ukraine, and it would mean a Russia that would be more likely and able to directly threaten Germany. But curiously, he's stopped short of saying that Ukraine should win, which is subtly different from saying that it shouldn't lose. And Schultz won't deliver long-range Taurus missiles, which have range that's longer than the missiles France and the UK have given the Ukrainians. You might hear the word Taurus going about German talk shows lately. So I'll just explain what that is for a minute. There's something that there are missiles that Germany can give that Ukraine has asked for, and that can make a difference on the battlefield by hitting targets the Ukrainians can't hit yet with what they currently have. Yet despite several calls for Taurus to be delivered, including from the opposition Christian Democrats, Schultz still won't do it. So Germany still isn't sending everything that could make a real difference on the battlefield. We also see countries like Canada, the US, UK pushing to be able to seize hundreds of billions of Russian assets that were frozen at the beginning of the war and actually giving those assets to the Ukrainians to help fund their defense now and their reconstruction later. Germany is still opposed right now, so it's still not doing everything that it can yet. What kind of shape is the German army in currently, Aaron? And 
would we say it's fit for purpose? Well, <laughs> we talked about that 100 billion euro fund earlier, the special fund. Yeah. Uh, the Bundeswehr is in such a state right now that even that's not likely to be enough, according to some experts. One of the opposition CDU's top defense and foreign policy experts, Roderick Kieseveta, said this week that that fund really needs to be about three times as big, so 300 billion euros, to really make a dent in the problem. There's a lot of issues with kit and equipment, and it's not just the flashy stuff like fighter jets, uh, but the basics too. One report I saw last year detailed how the Bundeswehr didn't have enough helicopters or transport planes. Now, keep in mind that those are important not just for fighting, but also for things like emergency relief during natural disasters, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, that same report said last year that the Bundeswehr was even running short of Band-Aids. It didn't have enough medical plasters. supplies. Yeah, actual <laughs> plasters. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Um, Around the same time, experts were also cautioning that if a war between Germany and Russia ever did come, uh, that Germany only had enough ammunition to last for about, get this, two days. <laughs> two days okay. of war. So there's obviously a long way to go to, to build the Bundeswehr there up um, to where it needs to be. Okay, that's really interesting. And I think as we were talking just before we recorded there, it's it's just such a cultural mind shift for Germans and, and Germany, German policies, German politicians, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. they have thought since the, the fall of the Berlin Wall that this was a time of peace. And obviously, we hope that. But we are seeing lots of instability. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is why German defense experts and, of course, why uh, German defense minister Boris Pistorius has been calling for this bigger investment and saying we need to invest in deterrence. This mm -hmm. whole idea that if you're strong enough and you have a military that has enough equipment and where you put enough money into it, you don't need to worry about being attacked. The best way to guarantee your peace is to have something that can really deter uh, attack. And this is something that culturally uh, Germans just really haven't understood for uh, a very long time. In the Cold War, they certainly understood that yeah. with all of the um, spending we saw then. But this is a discussion that's really getting back into German public discourse in the last few years. Yeah, and I suppose that that is also a tactic that uh, Boris Pistorius, the defense minister, as you say, is like, if they talk up that all this spending is going into the, the military, that this would be a deterrent for Russia as well to kind of talk publicly about it. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any indications, Aaron, as to what regular people in Germany should do, if anything? For example, we did hear a few weeks ago from our sister site, the local Sweden, that there were calls for ordinary Swedes to prepare for the possibility of war in Sweden by stocking up on food, water and equipment, and even get familiar with the kind of policies that would come into force should there be a conflict there. Are we seeing any of this kind of talk in Germany? Well, we haven't seen that kind of messaging here the same way with regular citizens being asked to stock up uh, or look at how war could change our day-to-day -day lives. We do see, though, that the public seems on board. One poll this week finds 57% of Germans now support spending at least 2% of mm -hmm. GDP on defense, so that on, NATO target. Yeah, on board with the military spending, not yeah. with war. Let, let's yeah, just, yeah, let's, nobody, let's clarify nobody that. Nobody wants war, no, can we just say. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, no one wants war, but they are in favor of that spending. So they do seem to be getting back into the mindset of of really understanding deterrence. Also, Defense Minister Boris Pistorius recently said that Germany needs to become kriegstutig, or war-ready. That's already a big word for a German minister to use. It has the word krieg in it. Um, You know, word, right? War. It does mostly for now signal that the Bundeswehr needs big upgrades and investment to um, become fit for purpose. But I think it could gradually mean more also to regular citizens over time. We might see that word Kriegstuchtig um, appear, I think, on more talk shows and uh, newspapers, people asking about what does that mean, you know, for us. Thank you so much for that, Aaron. As you can tell, I'm completely in denial of everything. And I <laughs> I obviously have a lot of reading up to do and, and we'll listen to your podcast as well. That's why we're here. <laughs> it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Germany is known as a car-loving country. It is the place where you can drive as fast as you want on some autobahn roads, for example. But there are calls to crack down on owners of SUVs following a vote in Paris or a referendum in Paris to triple parking fees for SUVs. Rachel, can you tell us about what politicians and groups in Germany have been saying about these large sports utility vehicles or SUVs and why it's being talked about now? Well, many environmental groups and politicians in Germany already have not been fans of SUVs, but they really seized on a referendum in Paris the other week um, to get more vocal about their views. And essentially, the French capital decided to triple parking fees for anybody who was visiting the city in SUVs. This means that anybody who lives in Paris, anybody who works in Paris, as well as those with disabilities, are exempt from the new law. And it basically determined that cars weighing a full 1.6 tons or more would have to pay 18 euros to park in the center of the city and 12 euros further out. And so a few German politicians like Hanover's mayor, Belit One of the Greens, um, also advocated for higher fees the day after this referendum was voted on. Um, and he said that more appropriate pricing was needed considering the scarcity of public space. And German environmental aid also said that SUVs are essentially monster vehicles which take up too much sidewalk space. They take up too much 
much green open space and they endanger people who are biking as well as pedestrians. Um, and a couple other German nonprofits basically jumped on this and said that we need to have more, quote unquote, appropriate pricing. Have we seen any crackdown on SUV usage in Germany before, Rachel? Not so many explicit measures against them, Rach, although in the southwestern city of Tübingen, which has a very vocal green mayor, um, we have seen the doubling of parking fees for SUVs in 2022. And so that means that SUV drivers now fork down um, 180 euros for annual parking pass, which is significantly more than the 20 or 30 euros seen in other large German cities. Yeah, I would say we are increasingly seeing kind of conflicts breaking out between like cyclists, you know, pro-cyclists, pro-pedestrians and drivers or people in support of cars in cities across Germany, right? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's come into a few political campaigns, it seems, including Berlin's. Another story our colleague Paul reported on recently was about an anonymous pro-environmental group targeting SUVs by letting out the air in tires. This has been happening in several German cities. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Rachel? So environmental activists who were acting on behalf of a loosely organized group called the Tire Extinguishers um, have, yeah, have aptly been deflating hundreds of SUV tires um, in at least four different German cities over the last four months. One of their big actions was on Boxing Day, for example. So when a lot of people were, you know, celebrating with family and maybe not getting out and about as much, um, they took to the streets to deflate the tires of 60 vehicles in Potsdam. And previously, they targeted more than a dozen SUVs in Leipzig. And also, their website has posted the photos of popular SUV types around Germany and basically called on the public to go and look for them and deflate the tires. They claim that by doing that, um, people are making the SUVs, quote-unquote, safe And that basically just means that they can't be driven at all and that in turn they won't be harmful to the environment. And their website also states that SUVs rank among the top causes of energy-related carbon dioxide emissions growth over the last decade. So they're essentially calling on people to target SUVs. And it's quite interesting because they also, they don't slash the tires, right? So you would know if you were targeted if the air has just been deflated out of them. Apparently, they use a lentil or a small pebble and put it in the tire valve cap. So that's how you would know if you're targeted. We have a story on this, but yeah, it's kind of a way they're doing it. Very sneaky. It is, yeah. And it's not quite as bold in that sense as some of the other actions that we've seen in recent months. Most people in Germany have heard of the group Last Generation, who are famous or infamous for radical actions like gluing themselves to the Autobahn or to the airport tarmac. Yes, I remember those. <laughs> yeah, or scaling the Brandenburg Gate and vandalizing it and all of those sorts of things. Yes, yeah, they were really, really well known in the media. That was reported on a lot. The fact is, guys, Germany does have a deeply ingrained culture of cars and driving, doesn't it? So do you think this is changing? Well, one of the biggest uh, producers in the world of cars, of course. Um, yeah. 
I'm not sure we're seeing a change just yet. I mean, I think back to Berlin's repeat election last year, where we saw the opposition Christian Democrats oust the city's three-way coalition between left-wing parties to take the mayor's office. And a big part of their strategy was to say that it represented the interests of the Außenbezirk and the outer districts that still needed their cars to get to work. It painted the city's greens in particular as being out of touch with outer districts and not understanding that not everyone lived in a place with public transport connections that would allow them to leave their car at home. And guess what? That strategy, you know, worked for them. Um, I don't think we're seeing a Germany that's quite ready to give up its cars yet if we're seeing a strategy like that work in one of the cities that you can probably most easily get around without a car in the country. Thank you so much for that, guys. Now we're moving on to some work news. Several German companies are trying out a four-day work week for their employees following successful pilot projects in both the UK and Portugal. We talked a bit about this in an episode last May, and we interviewed the author and entrepreneur Martin Gate. so you should definitely check that out. But things have moved forward, and on February 1st, the trial in Germany started. Aaron, what should we know about this project? Yeah, so starting at the beginning of this month, 45 German companies started taking part in a trial of the four-day work week. It's going on for around six months, and companies are going to see if they can reduce working hours to four days while leaving employees with the same pay, but also expecting their productivity not to suffer. So I think this is somehow sometimes referred to as the 80-100-100 rule. Ah. <laughs> you know, like 80% of the time, but 100% of the pay and 100% of the of, of the results. Yes. Um, yeah, sort of thing. We know that Germany is the latest country to see this trial, but it has happened already last year in the UK, uh, for example. They saw 56 out of 61 participating companies choose to keep the four-day week after the trial's end. So I'm, for one, I'm curious to see um, if a similar ratio is going to happen with the German companies that are taking part in this one. Do we know which kind of companies are taking part, Aaron, and where are they based in Germany? We do indeed. 14% of those companies are IT companies, um, and that's the largest single share in terms of industry. Then we have a lot of consulting companies, uh, retail property and construction companies. All of those sectors, at least 10%, make up at least 10% of the the total number of companies participating. Mm -hmm. As for where they are, North Rhine-Westphalia is disproportionately represented here. Uh, 30% of the companies doing this trial are based there. Uh, Down south in Baden-Württemberg and Bavaria, uh, they each have around 16% of the companies that are participating. Yeah, we'd love to know if you're listening to this and you're part of the trial, get in touch with us. We'd love to know how it's going. We really have been hearing a lot about four-day weeks across various European countries. Why is it being talked about so much in Germany, Aaron? Well, experts who advocate for the four-day week often argue that we've got a big labor shortage um, here in Germany. And you might, and the government certainly thinks, well, hey, you know, how does reducing hours help us tackle a labor shortage where we don't have enough labor? Experts, though, say that it makes your company more attractive if you have a four-day week, so it is easier for you to find labor that wants to work with you. Uh, And this is a key point of contention in current negotiations between German state rail Deutsche Bahn 
and the GDL union, which represents drivers. Of course, this was the union and its drivers that was recently behind, I think, the longest strike ever. Yes, <laughs> um, the five day. It was originally six day and it yeah, got cut to five day and it was still the longest. Still the longest ever. Yeah, exactly. GDL wants a shorter work week for the same pay. And we see Deutsche Bahn pushing back on that hard. That's a big bone of contention in those particular negotiations. Really interesting. Thanks for that, Aaron. And we will include our story on that in the show notes. Many of our listeners want to submit an application to become German with the naturalization law set to change very soon, while others will already be waiting to be granted that all-important German citizenship certificate. But as we've talked about before, they could be waiting a long time, especially in Berlin. The city-state recently installed a new centralized system for applying for citizenship, but the backlog for applications is sitting at over 40,000. Rachel, can you tell us about how Berlin's new online centralized system works? To give you a little bit of background, Berlin is notorious for long waiting times for anybody who applies for citizenship. Previously, applicants were assigned to the district that they lived in, be it Pankow or Neukölln, and they could wait up to two or even three years before they got their hands on a German passport. And one really frustrating thing is that if they moved, they would have to start the process all over again, even if they had been waiting for two years at that point. So the new centralized system will process all of the applications in Berlin, and they're going to have a far higher number of total staffers, over double the number of staffers that there were previously. And one thing that will also really reduce bureaucracy, or at least this is the hope of the city, is this new online form. People can simply check a list of criteria to make sure that they meet the requirements in the first place. And then if they do, they simply fill out a form and pay around 250 euros through PayPal or card, which is, you know, a very revolutionary change from the days when, (laughs) yeah, when the days they would have to physically go to the office and withdraw their daily max and cash from the ATM um, to pay to start the application process. Let's hear now from Sven Hasse. He is an immigration lawyer based in Berlin and a good friend of the podcast. I asked Sven if he's been seeing more requests from people to launch a legal challenge against the Berlin authorities regarding citizenship application delays. Yes, well, it is widely discussed. And of course, I have a lot of uh, requests to file a lawsuit against the citizenship authority. But let's start a little bit earlier. So what is the situation in Berlin? So in Berlin, we have a centralized authority which took over 1st of January all the pending applications from the district office. And there are about 40,000 pending applications. Plus, there have been a lot of people waiting for the new authority because it was almost impossible at the end of last year to get appointments and to start the process. So that means that at the beginning of this year, there was a big rush to file applications with the new implemented online application system. So I think we have around 45,000 to 50,000 applications now, and we have 200 uh, caseworkers in the new authority. 
And it is completely understandable that everyone wants to speed the process up, but um, the possibilities are limited. So one could file a lawsuit um, to the administrative court. The law says technically an authority must decide on a complete application within three months after you provided all the documents needed um, or provide reasons for delay. Technically, an application for um, naturalization cannot be decided faster than six to eight months. That has to do with the authorities involved in that case. But of course, it is not understandable that it takes 24 months, as it might be in Berlin. But the only chance to speed it up, if you can't convince uh, the authority to speed it up, which is hard because they say we work um, on the limit and we can't decide on more cases, the only possibility is to file a lawsuit to the administrative court. And then the question is, is that a guarantee that it accelerates the process? I'd say not really. There is no experience um, until now whether it works to speed it up with the new authority. There is also no experience whether it is faster to file an application on the online system than uh, to have filed an application last year. I think the new system is much faster, it's much easier because uh, the system itself can check several things. They have already the data in the system and all the old pending applications they are on paper. They have to enter the data manually to their system uh, before they can start working on it. But of course, no one knows uh, whether a lawsuit can speed it up. And I'm so honest to tell my clients, we can try that. But you have to know, I can't guarantee whether it is faster. And you have to know that the administrative court going to charge the court fees, uh, which are significant. Have you seen any similar problems or heard of any similar problems elsewhere in Germany? Definitely. It is not a problem just of Berlin. I think Berlin is on a good way with the new digitalized uh, system. I have seen online application systems for naturalization in Munich as well, and Hamburg implemented that as well. A lot of other authorities, they work paper-based, and a lot of them insist on a personal appointment, and only then they hand out the forms. And there is sometimes a big queue of, well, if you want to get an appointment, you have to wait for nine months or even 12 months before you can get an appointment to receive the forms. I think that is not reasonable, and there is no reason why you should not file an application in writing in these cases. And if uh, the authority thinks they should not work on this written an application, then uh, maybe a lawsuit uh, is the only possibility to, to bring them start working on the case. But as well, they have the same struggles, the same problems um, as Berlin has. Generally spoken, one can say if you live in a smaller town, it should be faster. But if in this small town there are maybe three caseworkers in the citizenship authority and everyone is ill or on vacation or on maternity leave, then uh, you have the same problem as Berlin has. Obviously, really big problems in Berlin and elsewhere, as Fem was saying. Do you guys see it getting better anytime soon? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that backlog of 40,000 in Berlin applications is from before the new rules take effect. And once they do, expect a deluge of applications. And there is nothing in that upcoming citizenship law, modernization law, that has passed both the Bundestag and the Bundesrat and hopefully coming into effect in the spring that provides for more resources or better processes to deal with all of these new applications. Yeah, I think in Germany, sometimes things have to get worse before they get better and so I'm also a little bit skeptical. <laughs> Welcome to living in Germany. <laughs> Do you think this could put people 
off from applying? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, people we speak to say they're ready to go ahead. Um, they're just bracing themselves to have to wait mm-hmm. years in some cases. They have accepted that this is kind of a necessary evil. They're not looking forward to it, though, obviously. Yeah, I'm part of a social media group for people applying for citizenship in Berlin right now. And based on what they share, the majority kind of just accept that it could take a long time and they're willing to hold out. Um, Sometimes a non-Berlin resident will join from some small town and they share their magical story of getting citizenship (laughs) in just three months. And people react with both bewilderment and understandably envy as well. (laughs) There you go. Go to a small town. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Um, On a positive note, Sven said he's been getting a lot more inquiries from people because they've heard about the the upcoming change in the German citizenship law. And they, you know, want more information. They want to see if they're eligible. They're not quite sure. So even though there are bureaucratic challenges, I think people are quite excited about the law change. Yeah. And they might have heard from it from the local. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because we've been all over this story, of course. Absolutely. Because we love this story. We do. Um, it, it is an exciting time. I think a lot of people were put off by all the delays we saw in getting the law passed. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that it's finally through German parliament and just awaiting presidential signature, which is largely a formality here, a lot of people's I'll believe it when I see it moment you know, has arrived. And people are really excited to become German without giving up uh, another part of their identity. Definitely. I think that's actually what put people off from applying before this idea that they would have to give up part of their identity more than the worries about bureaucracy. I mean, if they live in Germany, they are well used to that anyways. So it's just yet another challenge that they have to deal with. That's it for it this week. Thank you so much to all our listeners. As always, we will add the links in the show notes for the stories we've been talking about today. It would really mean a lot to us if you hit follow, left a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, especially if you enjoyed it. This week's panelists have been Rachel Stern and Aaron Burnett. Our guest was Sven Hasse and our sound engineer is Reese Edwards. I'm Rachel Loxton. We hope you enjoyed listening and we'll be back again next week. Until then, take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.